Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today we'll be talking to John Owens about his book, Confessions of a Bad Teacher, The Shocking Truth from the Front Lines of American Public Education. John, welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today we'll be talking to John Owens about his book, Confessions of a Bad Teacher, The Shocking Truth from the Front Lines of American Public Education. John, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. John, I'm wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I've worked for um, 30 years in the magazine industry. I worked... um in publishing. I was the editor and editorial director of a wide range of magazines, for um, mostly for a company, Hachette Philippaki, which publishes, um, which published at that time, Elle and Woman's Day, Car and Driver, Road and Track, Boating, Flying, all these magazines that are, that are you know, main, mainstream magazines. And it was a, just a great, a great career. I had a great career for over 30 years. And, um, and, you know, I, I made some money, and at the, after about 30 years, I said, you know what, I think maybe it's time for me to give back. I want to do some, I want to do some good. And so I um, said, I'm going to become a teacher. You know, I would see in the subway in, in New York, um, you know, be remembered, become a teacher, you know. And, and I said, you know, that, that America can use teachers. Uh, that's the impression I got, at least, from, uh, from, from the media, was that America needed teachers. And I said, well, hey, I'm, I'm happy to do it. And so I went to graduate school for a year and, um, and got my, my license to teach in New York, and off I went. And so um, which of your experiences, either as a student or during your time teaching, do you think have most shaped your views on what the purpose of public education is? Well, I, my entire career, my entire education was public education. Um, I went to public schools. Um, on Long Island, New York, and I went to the State University of New York, um, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm the product of public education, and I'm, I'm a big fan of it. You know, I'd always had um, a wonderful. I felt I had a wonderful education um, from you know elementary school right on through, and my teachers were people, for the most part, who I thought were um, admirable people. They were trying hard, and they. Um, they helped us. We learned. Um, sometimes we didn't, but some, most times we did. And, you know, they weren't perfect people, but a lot of them were just caring and wonderful and helpful. And I, I really admired them. And I, um, you know, I thought about them a lot in my life. You know, you, you reflect back on, on the teachers and the experiences and the things they taught you. And so what do you think your expectations were for what your job was going to be like while you were in graduate school and before you began teaching full-time? Well, 
I knew it was going to be difficult um, because it was a change. You know, it was I was going from being in charge. You know, in my in, mm-hmm. in publishing, I knew that I was at the top of the the um, food chain, and now I was coming in as a as a beginning teacher, and I was going to be at the bottom of the food chain, and so I knew that, and I was prepared for that. But I felt that um, my expectations were that I was wanted, that at least they wanted teachers. If they didn't want me, at least they wanted warm bodies in the classroom. You know, I wasn't expected to expecting being hugged and thanked every day for my contributions, but I was expecting to at least have a job where um, it, they thought it was a good thing that somebody showed up, you know, and that was my expectation. And I thought that within that framework, with enough hard work and enough learning from those around me who knew how to do this, because I knew I didn't know how to do it, you know, I mean, I was just a beginner, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't have any sense that I could be, you know, a great teacher simply because I'd been a great student. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's one of the fallacies so many people have, is that if you're a student, you'd make a good teacher. Well, the logic is just ridiculous. I mean, that's the logic they use for Teach for America, and it's the same sort of logic that they you would use if you had... Let me be an airline pilot because I've flown on airplanes about a million miles. You know, I would not make a good pilot. I was just a passenger, and I was just a student. I wasn't a teacher. And I've eaten in great restaurants, but I could never be a chef. But yet in education, there's some sense that if you've participated in it at all, then you can, you can teach. And that's ridiculous. You know, you have, to, you have to learn the skills. You have to learn so many subtle and not subtle things. You know, everything from body language to, you know, uh, to what you say to everything. I mean, it's just so much. And so my expectations were I was going to learn. It was going to be difficult. I was going to have to work hard. But that I would, I would be able to make an impact. I would at least be able to help some kids, you know, um, learn to read and learn to write and learn to enjoy education, at least in some measure, and hope to put, help them put them on, the, on a path towards success, like my teachers had done for me. What did you actually come to find once you got started? And then how did you come to put that in, into the book? Well, I came to see that I was not wanted there, that no teachers were wanted there. It is like this, it's insanity, it's insanity. I was in a system, and I think it's even more so, you know, well, it's not just in New York City. It's, it seems to be everywhere now that teachers are bad. Teachers are a public enemy. That there has gotten to be this sense that the problem with American education is teachers. There are bad teachers. I mean, Newsweek, back when Newsweek was a magazine, they had a cover story that said the problem with education is bad teachers. The New Yorker, in one of their um, online things, they said, you know, it's, it's common in our culture now, and it's accepted to just to be against teachers. Um, teachers are considered, I guess what used to be considered the welfare queens, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, you know, the people everybody hated because they were... Um, they were just, you know, loafing, and they were sucking up all the money, and they were ruining our society. People were looking at look at teachers that way. I mean, it's an insanity. And so here I was in this public school system where I wasn't wanted, and neither were any of the people around me. And I had teachers around me who were really experienced. I mean, some of these people had, you know, 20 years' experience in the classroom and were really, really good. 
and none of us were wanted. Um, it was the whole the whole culture was punitive, and as though you know, um, I don't know what, they, what the thinking was that they're going to do when they got rid of all of us. But that seemed to be that seemed to be the culture that is now permeating American education. I have a, a couple of questions I want to ask you about that, and so uh, this myth of the bad teacher seems to be rooted in the current education reform movement in the United States. And so for our listeners who don't know, I was wondering if you can kind of explain what's commonly meant by education reform nowadays and what exactly your critique of it is. Well, education reform basically is taking the current educational system that we have. And this is a an educational system, a public school system, that for so long was the envy of the world. You know, people would come to this country to send the kids to public schools, and yet somehow we have this notion now that the system is horrible, that Singapore and Japan and China and you name a country, Finland, you know, you name anybody, they have better schools than we do. Their kids are learning more than we are. And this is spread by people, and some of them I think are well-meaning, but they're just not well-informed because they're not educators. And I think Bill Gates was very big in this. And I know New York City Mayor Bloomberg was very big in this. And the family that owns Walmart, the Waltons, are very big in this, um, is that what you have to do is dismantle the American education system and let the people who revolutionized so many other industries revolutionize education. The people who were geniuses and made billions of dollars on Wall Street by dealing with data, and hedge funds and algorithms, they, they prove that they're geniuses. They can do the same thing in education that they did on Wall Street. Bill Gates, you know, and, and his company did wonderful things with software. They can do the same things with education. Education is, is basically, they, they feel, is a very old-fashioned way of doing things. It involves human interaction. And human interaction is very inefficient. Human interaction is very expensive. Why not do it with some other way? And if the people you're using have been doing it for a long time, it's obvious that they're doing it wrong. The only people who can do anything right in their minds are young people who have virtually no experience but have a lot of energy and new ideas. I mean, it's just so crazy, but that's what it is. So the first step in this whole process of revolutionizing and dismantling the education system is to break the bond between the parents and the teachers. For generations, it was the parents and the teachers who were allies in the kids' education. You know, they would, they would fight for you know, smaller class size. They would fight for supplies. They would fight to get all these things and the, to help the kids. And the parents and the teachers would work together on this. And so what they smartly did is they these people, they've started, they blame the teachers. They say, no, no, parents, the problem is the teachers. Turn on the teachers, ally with us, the people who are way smarter and way richer, and we will help you. And so turn on the teachers. The teachers are bad. And so what they do is that they can break the unions because there's this myth, too, that teachers have a very strong union. You always hear it, the, the powerful teachers union. Um, 
Um, that's that's just the way they just always describe it. I know in New York City, the powerful teachers union. Well, the powerful teachers union is, is um, doesn't have a whole lot of power anymore uh, because the teachers are being fired and mistreated like crazy, and the education system is falling apart. But there's this myth that if we can break the union, we can get rid of these teachers, and we can replace them with people who make far less money and are far more energetic and are far more creative and will do a much better job. And that's, that's the myth. That is, that is the myth of, of school reform. And the other thing in school reform is that anything can be measured, just like with a spreadsheet or a, an algorithm. You can measure everything. And so we can prove it, these people say. They say we can prove that these teachers are bad, we can prove that these kids aren't learning, and we can prove that our ideas work. And that's, that's basically the argument. I understand that there's a difference between people who are experienced in, in business and people who are experienced in education. And I can see where a disconnect may emerge. Um, I can also imagine that, lot, like you said, lots of people are well-intentioned. Um, it's interesting to me that so many philanthropists focus their energies on education when there are a lot of, of other problems in our society worth solving. And so why do you think there is all of this interest put on to education? Well, because it is truly, I mean, the, the truth is there are a lot of kids in this country who are not getting the education they deserve. You know, there are kids who have... Um, physical problems and mental problems and poverty problems and are not English language speakers, they're not getting a very good education. And so people say, oh, I could help them get a good education. I'm, I made a billion dollars. Um, I will, you know, I will give them my thoughts and a few, few dollars of my money so that they can straighten this out. That's the thinking, you know. Um, it should be an easy fix, they think. Mm -hmm. But of course it's not, you know. Um, it, it, you know, it like seems like it would City, be. I know, to to yeah, someone who has been a teacher. Yeah, and you see, the thing is, like, among among the rich, this status in having um, your own your own charter school, mm -hmm. you know, you can um, you can show what you're doing, and and you can say, look, I'm I'm saving the world here, and I'm doing good, because education truly is the the civil rights movement of the 21st century. I believe that. You know, it is the only way people can really, truly get ahead is have a good education, and it's a fight worth fighting. And these people, some of them are well-meaning, and they're they're fighting it, thinking that they're doing good, but they don't know anything about education. That's the problem. They're using their own thought of if I have a good education, then I make I'm, I know a lot about education. Mm -hmm. But it's a whole different thing. You know, again, if you've flown a lot of miles on an airplane, doesn't make you knowledgeable about you know, um, aeronautical engineering. It's the same, it's the same thinking. And so it's, it's interesting to me to hear you say that education, in your opinion, is the civil rights issue of our time, because that's rhetoric that a lot of education reformers might use themselves. And so I'm interested to know, um, what, what solutions do you think offer more promise than uh, firing quote unquote bad teachers or opening more charter schools and so on and so forth? Well, I think we really should have an honest dialogue about education in our country and go beyond the, the pointing fingers and beyond the blame game. And also, we should understand the, 
um, the agendas that that are on, that everyone has. You know, the only agenda that seems to exist in the media is the teachers are just always looking out for their their salaries and their benefits and their retirement and their summers off. We don't hear that these um, charter school people are looking to make serious money running. Um, running private charter schools, or we don't look at what the the Walton family is thinking about, you know, in their anti-union views, you know, we're not, we're not thinking, we're not, we're not having an honest discussion, and our politicians certainly aren't, because they get, they get more money from these, um, these so-called philanthropists than they do from anybody else, and so they're, they're on their side too, but we need an honest, an honest discussion about what the real problem is. And the real problem is not teachers. The real problem, I mean, for the most part, if you want just one word for what the real problem is, the real problem is poverty. The places where we have um, poor schools and poor results are places that are poor. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from Long Island originally, and on Long Island there is a school district that has the most amazing results from from any test they give the kids. The kids, you know, it's it's just a a pipeline to the Ivy League. Well, because everyone there is wealthy. Jericho, Long Island, is one of the richest places in the world, and and the public schools are just incredibly wonderful, wonderful. You know, gym teachers there make, I I think, $160,000 a year. It gives you a sense. And just a few miles away is a place called Roosevelt, where I did my student teaching, and they score on state tests like 8% of the kids passed on one of the state tests, okay, where 90-some-odd passed in, in Jericho. Well, the difference is the difference the teachers, now the difference is one place is rich and one place is poor. And that is the, the thing. The teachers can't overcome that in 46 minutes a day, 180 days a year. You cannot overcome poverty. You cannot overcome problems at home. You cannot overcome ADHD. You cannot overcome all sorts of issues in 46 minutes a day. You have to go beyond what you can do in the classroom. And people, America just doesn't want to hear that because it costs money. And then the... The reformers are talking about making it more efficient, about making it less expensive, not about the real costs of education. And I thought it was interesting earlier how you point out that teachers aren't the only ones in this debate who have a personal stake in something. So it's not only teachers who might be trying to make a case for higher salaries or vacations or or other benefits, but uh, there are maybe personal reasons why principals argue for what they do, or the philanthropists argue for what they do, or people who run charter schools argue for what they do. Um, so no one truly has an objective opinion if you're part of this debate at all. Yeah, if you're part of any debate, basically any public debate, you usually have some personal stake in it, whether it's financial or emotional or whatever. You know, we all have a stake in it. You know, I myself don't have any kids in the public schools anymore. I don't go to public schools anymore, but I ha- certainly have a deep emotional stake in it, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and you know, a lot of people do, both for and against. And so the, the problems that, that plague schools are really problems that, that plague our society. They are big problems. They are problems that are complex. They are expensive. And so I'm kind of wondering, uh, during your time you've spent in schools, um, 
what can be done at the school level. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what you think makes a good teacher or a good administrator and what skills in those two professions tend to be over or undervalued. Well, see, the, the problem is in so many schools, what's really valued are numbers, you know, and, and unless you can come up with the data, you're a bad teacher. What makes a great teacher? Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, I don't, I don't recall when I went to school that we had so many state tests, you know. Um, the kids I gave tests, the kids in my school, we, they took, what was it, a total of, I think it was 50 tests a year. On the average, it was one a week. Okay, we had tests of, of, constantly, constantly. Now, that wasn't just in my class, just in English, but, you know, when you take all their, all their classes together, they had like 50 tests a year. So a lot of time was just spent preparing for tests. And so a school that becomes a test prep factory where the kids are just drilled into doing the tests, that's often considered a good school. That's considered academics. Mm-hmm. But in the truth, what a real teacher is, is a teacher is someone who helps a kid helps a kid bring out their potential or at least some small part of their potential. Um, and if nothing else, can sit there and not disturb the other kids if the kid doesn't want to bring out his own potential. Um, that's, those are important traits. And, you know, kindness and concern um, and firmness, you know, not being, not being a waffler, I think, or, you know, what you would look for are the good traits in, in a good parent or in a good boss or a good anything are the traits you would want in a, in a teacher or a principal. Um, but what we've seen instead are, is this notion that the teachers are bad and they have to be punished. And that's what the principals do. The, te- the principals punish them um, because the teachers are always trying to slack off or whatever is the, is the thinking. It's, a, it's nonsensical, but, you know, that's, that's the thinking. Do you have the benefit of having spent decades in, in other professions? So how is this similar or dissimilar to your experiences in the publishing industry? Well, one thing is I'll tell you what. When I worked in the publishing industry, I dealt with budgets of millions of dollars a year, millions of dollars a year. And I did not deal with nearly as many spreadsheets and Excel (laughs) programs as I did when I was teaching eighth and ninth grade English in the South Bronx. We had spreadsheets upon spreadsheets. We kept data on the kids like crazy. We had so much data, it was insane. 2,000 points of data a week I had to put in, okay? And it wasn't just on tests, and it wasn't just on homework, and it doesn't, wasn't just on you know, class participation, but it was on crazy things like reflective living or self-determination. How is, how is this kid um, on self-determination? We would have to keep track of that. I don't know how you keep track yeah, of it, but we did. Sounds like a hard thing to measure. And so it, was, it, became, it, it became insane. You know, when you're dealing in business, it's, it's dollars and cents. It's the bottom line. And so it's, it's fairly straightforward. Um, in education, what they're trying to do is make it like that. But, of course, um, to get there, it's, you have to use all kinds of... Um, you know, 
kookiness to get there. That's why they, they measure everything, absolutely everything. Things that can be measured and things that can't be measured. They still measure them. So this way you can have a spreadsheet that proves whatever you want to prove. And that was one of the big differences I noticed was that um, with the, the data just truly um, out of totally out of control. You know, in the in the corporate world too, performance is measured by what you actually achieve. In the educational system, I saw it was more like a pageant. We had what it looked like. If it looked like the kids were learning, then the kids were learning. If you did your, um, let's say your mini lecture, you know, which was this first part of our class, you had to give a little lecture on some what you were going to teach today, and if it ran more than seven minutes, you were reprimanded. I had my my um, my lead teacher in my classroom with a stopwatch, timing every aspect of my lessons and my classes because I I wasn't following the, the choreography close enough. And I would get reprimanded for going, you know, 30 seconds over. And so it gives you a sense. And it wasn't the performance necessarily. It was the image of the performance, which was really quite a, a shock. And so I'm, I'm hearing you talk about what you're, what you're showing that you're doing that's a little bit different than demonstrating results. Um, you have to keep track of a lot of data. Maybe that's not something you expected to be doing when you started teaching. It's all kind of making me think of something you write about early on in the book is that you were spending maybe as early as five in the morning until as late at 10 as at, as late as 10 at night at school and, you know, keeping yourself pretty busy and putting forth a lot of effort during those hours but you still weren't feeling like you were getting the results that you wanted to. You still didn't feel like students' needs were always being met. And so I'm wondering if you can kind of unpack that disconnect uh, between the time and effort teachers put in versus the results, their ability to, to realize those results. Yeah, well, I, I'll tell you what. I never worked such long hours in any job I'd ever had before. The hours were grueling. Absolutely grueling. Now, I wasn't in the classroom those that many hours, but the hours I spent preparing and the hours I spent afterwards. But it, most of it, most of that time was not spent on the kids. It was not spent on the kids' needs. It was not spent, you know, looking at their papers or trying to figure out a way to reach this one or that one. Or no, it was it was spent on data, and it was spent on reflections. That's we had to reflect a lot. That was whenever you um, did something wrong, you had to write up basically a confession that was sort of like the East German police. Um, you had to confess to your, why you went over uh, for your mini lesson, why you spent seven and a half minutes rather than seven minutes on your mini lesson. You'd have to write a reflection and give it to the assistant principal to go into your file. And so, so much of your time was spent on this ridiculous um, data and, and um, I don't know what you would call it. I guess you call it punishment. Mm -hmm. And very, very little was spent on actually coming up with, um, with creative lesson plans or um, working on the stuff for the kids. And that is, that is really the truth. It was, um, it was busy work of the cruelest kind. 
you know, because what you what I felt and what so many teachers feel is this great frustration that they're just they're not just spinning their wheels; they're going in reverse. Uh, but you don't get to spend the time with the kids. After school, we couldn't even keep the kids after school, you know, to to talk to them and stuff. They would sweep them out of the class, out of the out of the school, at exactly what was it, three o five. They would come through and sweep them out, so that like if the kid wanted to stay behind and do something or even just talk to you, they couldn't. And you couldn't go outside with them because they would try to break up the, the, the groups of kids outside so they wouldn't get into fights. So you couldn't even catch the kids. So even if you wanted to or could or whatever, you couldn't. I mean, the frustration factor was just huge. Putting in all this time and you're not even approaching the results. I was thinking about using that, that same phrase, busy work, to kind of characterize uh, what I'm hearing you say. I'm wondering if you can kind of put yourself in the shoes of that administrative team there. What did they think that was going to happen by asking you to, to do these things? Well, you have to understand that what we're increasingly doing in America is taking people who aren't educators and making them administrators. Um, the, the, my principal had been a math teacher for a couple years, but I also met a fellow who was a principal of another school not far from ours who had been an accountant with Coca-Cola. And he decided to stop being an accountant, and they made him a principal. They went to a to principal training school for a year where they were taught how to get the data, and they were basically told the way to manage teachers was to use this very strict, very punitive um, system. Uh, if you don't do exactly what, you, what you're told and you don't get the results you're supposed to get, you, um, you're in big trouble. And that was, the, that was basically the whole setup in the New York City public school system. And I think it's that way increasingly around the country. Um, they, their mission was to get the numbers, was to get the numbers they needed. And if you as a teacher don't turn in the numbers that they need, you are a bad teacher. If a camera crew from a TV station can't walk into your classroom at any moment and find that it's a cathedral of learning, that's what I was told my classroom in the eighth graders in the South Bronx was supposed to be, a cathedral of learning. Now, in this class were kids who had ADHD and had no meds. There were kids who lived in homeless shelters. There were kids who were would throw each other around the room, and yet I was supposed to, there were kids who were special ed kids, there were special, a third of my class was special ed, and I had no special ed training, and I had no special ed teacher with me, but I was supposed to make it a cathedral of learning where not only it looked like these kids were learning, but I also had numbers to support that. That was the mission that was given from on high. I'm wondering, uh, your, your book was published a couple of years ago. And so what's your assessment of all of these things today? Does there seem to have been a, a backlash yet? It's still going on. I mean, in fact, you know, it's interesting because the teachers I taught with, I still am in touch with. And it's like, a, like we were in the foxholes together in a war that we built a bond that I think might be lifelong <laughs> because of what we all went through. And I heard from one of my teachers, my friends, who is still teaching in the city system, and she said it's even worse now. And, you know, the parents aren't standing up. No one's standing up. I mean, it's, it's just getting worse. And so because also people don't want to pay more. That's the problem. Education is expensive. 
It's expensive. There's no way around it. We like to think it is. It, it, you can do it cheap, but you can't. No one's figured out how. And if anyone's thought they have an idea on how to do it, they haven't proven that it works. Um, and that's a problem. And so this this whole, well, vilification of teachers and dismembering of the, of the educational system that once was the envy of the world just continues. So what do you think it would take to, to sort of turn the, the tide in this debate? Is there anything that, that you could see I, happening? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Parents have to stand up. We saw that in New York. We saw that in New York. The parents stood up when they brought in the Common Core in New York. They went crazy. They opted out of the tests, and it changed things. You know, our current um, Secretary of Education was at that time the, com- the, um, the Commissioner of Education in New York, John King. And he um, was a total reformer, an absolute total reformer, and a very dangerous man who sounds very benign when he speaks, but he's really very dangerous. And the parents were able to basically get him to move on. And that was a pretty wonderful thing. Parents rising up, I was totally astounded at, at, at the power of this. The opt-out movement on Long Island and then throughout New York has been truly powerful. And I think that it can happen. People, parents just have to get together and start because their, um, their passion for it is real. And they vote. And when you vote, politicians do listen. Um, even even Cuomo, who is in the pocket of those um, of those hedge funders and stuff, you know he he listens because he knows that it, it it's real. He's, there's, you're talking about hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of, of parents. And so I think uh, you can start on the local level, absolutely on the grassroots level, and you'd be surprised at how how quickly things can change in your school district or your city or then, you know, ultimately your state and let's hope the nation ultimately. But you certainly can have an impact on your local schools. If readers had just one takeaway from the book, what do you hope it would be? That teaching is a... Teaching is a very tough profession, and that our kids are being cheated. I think that's the most important thing, that our kids are being cheated, especially the neediest kids, the kids who, who, have, who are poor, the kids who have disabilities, the kids who don't speak English as a first language, that they're being cheated. And we believe we're helping them. We're actually, we're actually creating a problem that, can la- that could last for generations. Um, you know, we could be creating an underclass because of our educational policy. And I, you know, my book is not a book about policy. My book is a book about people. It's about the people I saw around me and it's the experiences I had. But the message, I think, is pretty clear that these kids were, were getting cheated. And, um, and, you know, when you start meeting the kids in the book, you, you can, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just so sad. It's just so sad. That's, that's the one takeaway, is that we are cheating our children. John, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time this morning, so I just want to close things out by asking you a couple more questions. First, uh, what are three other books you might recommend to our listeners if they enjoy your book as well as our conversation today? Well, to me, the guru of all of this, the person who you have to read is Diane Ravitch. Her latest book is called Reign of Error. 
the hoax of, privatiza- of the privatization movement. Um, it is truly amazing. It's, it explains, it takes apart the reform movement argument by argument in a very um, readable and intelligent way. It's, it's a wonderful book, Reign of Error by Diane Ravitch. Her previous book is The Death and Life of the Great American Public School System, um, and that's, that's another great book. Um, yeah, Diane Ravitch is the one I guess I, I would, anything, you know, that she has put her name on is, is really um, the book for me. You know, I, I look at other education books and they're good. There's a lot of other education books that are good, but those two stand out um, at the top. Finally, what are you working on now and how can our listeners follow your work? Well, I, I, I speak periodically and I write periodically about it. But so, if I guess if I'm sort of like if the circus comes to your town and you see me, I'll be there. But there's no, I'm not doing, I'm not doing a lot online or anything. It's more of um, in-person stuff. So, um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's what I am doing. Well, I, I'd I'd love to see you uh, if you come to Southern California, John. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, Trevor. Thank oh, you. My pleasure. <laughs> 